0: Well, thank you very much, Jo, uh, and thanks to all of you for taking time out of what I know will be very busy schedules to to come and listen to this talk. Um, So my starting point is the fact that it's possible to be sceptical about whether or not anyone really has free will. And it's also possible to be sceptical about whether or not a mind independent world exists. Um, and in this talk, one of my aims will be to draw attention to what I think is a rather curious disanalogy uh, between the way uh, these two forms of scepticism are discussed and treated. And the disanalogy, roughly speaking, consists in the fact that while the denial that we have free will is considered to be a sort of respectable philosophical position with plenty of adherence and so on, you know, there's plenty of people who... Uh, who are free-will deniers. Um, The denial that a mind-independent external world exists is, I think, not in that position. I mean, of course, it hasn't always been so. I mean, historically, there have been idealists, there have been phenomenalists. Um, But I think uh, in today's philosophical debate, um, there's very few people, indeed, who, uh, who occupy those sorts of positions. The assumption that almost everybody makes Uh, is that the external world does exist. I mean, mean, people might debate about how we know it's there or whether we're justified in believing that it is, but no one really argues any longer, I think, that it isn't. Um, Now, I don't want to try and persuade you uh, to stop believing in the external world. Um, It's the other half of this uh, disanalogous pairing um, that I really want to focus on tonight. Um, what I regard as the rather strange comparative respectability of free will denial. Um, my belief that free will denial, sorry, my belief is that free will denial is really the same sort of position as external world denial. Uh, that's to say, something one maybe can't prove absolutely to be um, a mistaken position, uh, but one which there ought really to be a massive presumption against. Um, Discussing the issues made more complicated than I'd really like it to be by the fact that not everybody means the same thing by free will, unfortunately. And indeed, I might even agree with some free will sceptics that free will, in the sense they've got in mind, indeed doesn't exist. Um, I don't really like the term free will, um, partly for this reason. I tend to speak instead of what I call agency, which I think lacks some of the unhelpful connotations um, of the more traditional term. Uh, But for present purposes, for today's purposes, I think you can take it that what I'm going to be meaning by agency is more or less the same, what very many people anyway, mean by free will. Um, And that's to say, a power to act which implies the existence of alternate possibilities. And it's going to be important for the discussion to follow um, to clarify that when I say uh, agencies are power to act, which implies the existence of alternate possibilities, I don't want to be presupposing there any particular view of what those alternate possibilities have to be like. For example, that they have to be libertarian style uh, alternate possibilities. I don't want that to sort of be built in to my conception of agency, the one that I'm starting off from. Um, and so the, the concept of agency I want to be starting off from is comparatively weak. Um, but it doesn't have libertarian presuppositions built into it immediately. And thus understood, I think, the denial of the existence of this power is, to my mind, um, really like the denial of the existence of the external world. That's to say something which is barely comprehensible as the content of anyone's real belief or at least that's what I'm going to be trying to persuade you of. But I know I'm out of step. I'm out of step with many others on uh, on that issue, which is why I'm interested in exploring it further tonight um, in the hope either of persuading you that I'm right or, uh, or reaching enlightenment myself. Now, of course, though, I've said I don't want to build libertarian assumptions into my conception of... Um, of the power I call agency, Um, I do, of course, think it's possible to argue from the existence of the power I call agency to the falsity of determinism. An argument's needed, but I think it is possible to to make it. So this is an argument that I've offered uh, in my book, A Metaphysics for Freedom. So first premise, if determinism were true, there would be no agents. That's the position I call agency incompatibilism. Second premise, that there are agents, aren't there? And so the conclusion is determinism is not true. Okay. That's the argument in very skeletal form. But I've found, presenting that argument over the years, that many people take issue with it. And by that I mean... I don't just mean they don't agree with the premises, okay. You can take issue with A1 and you can take issue with A2. And I've got absolutely no problem with that at all. Those are perfectly fine things to talk about and dispute. uh, And I like to talk about and dispute them. Um, As as I see it, uh, whether A1 is true is the issue between compatibilists and libertarians. And whether A2 is true is the issue between compatibilists and libertarians on the one hand and hard determinists on the other. At least that's, that's one way to see it. But both compatibilists and hard determinists, I found, are apt to find fault not merely with the premises of the argument from, from agency incompatibilism to the falsity of determinism, but with what one might call its dialectical propriety. They think there's something wrong with it as a kind of dialectical move. And that's really what I want to um, focus on um, at the start of this talk. For example, many compatibilists are convinced, more or less a priori, that that first premise just sort of must be false. Not that it is, not just that it is, but that it must be. Because they think they can sort of see straight away, without even considering directly what the relationship between determinism and agency might be, that If they were to let the first premise through, the argument would prove too much. It would prove more than it ought to be able to prove. And hard determinists, for their part, well, they're inclined to say that the second premise begs the question. They're inclined to say something like this. How can you be in a position to assert the existence of alternative possibility entailing agency when we don't know whether there are any alternate possibilities? Because we don't know why the determinism's true. And as I've said, I'm fine, of course, with the claim that premise one is false, I'm fine with the claim that premise two is false, in the sense that you know those are those are reasonable points to make, and I'm happy to argue about them. But I am not fine with the claim that premise one just must be false. Um, on the grounds that it results too easily in an argument for the conclusion AC of a kind that ought not to be able to be possible to make. And neither am I OK with the claim that A2 is question begging. Um, I think both these claims uh, of dialectical impropriety, as I'm putting it, are ultimately traceable um, to the same problematic thought about the kind of thesis that determinism must be Uh, And the consequent thought that whatever else we do with our argumentation, we've got to hold on to the idea that we don't know and couldn't know, merely by means of philosophical argumentation, that determinism is false. And it's that idea that I want to focus on tonight. I was first prompted to think more Um, about this issue by Bob Lockley's interesting discussion of the so-called lazy argument uh, in his recent book Free Will and Epistemology, which I very much recommend to those of you who haven't come across it yet. The lazy argument is uh, an ancient argument um, which many commentators have supposed is intended to prove, given certain suppositions, that there's no point in doing anything. That's why it's called the lazy argument. You might as well sit around and do nothing, because there's no point. It's always futile. Um, And of course, as as is the way with historical arguments, there are lots and lots of disputes about how exactly it's supposed to go. But roughly, we can say it's, it's something like this. So first premise, if it's determined or fated that P, it must be futile to make efforts to avoid P. But equally, if it's determined or fated that not P, it's going to be futile to make efforts to ensure that P. So, conclusion, in respect of all those things that are determined or fated, either to be or not to be, it follows that all our efforts are always entirely futile. Now, the lazy argument has generally been considered a sophism. Uh, It was judged fallacious by Chrysippus and Oregon in ancient times. Uh, It's also been judged fallacious by a range of subsequent commentators, uh, including Cicero, Leibniz, um, John Martin Fisher in our our own day, and Susanna Bobsy, to to name a few. But Locke argues, I think rather interestingly, that there's more to be said for the argument than might initially be thought. Uh, And in particular, he contends that part of the problem is that the argument's been historically misunderstood as an argument for laziness uh, or doing nothing when it should rather have been understood as an argument which is an attempt to refute determinism. Locke says uh, that the defenders of the lazy argument aren't defending its conclusion of futility or impotence, a decision to do nothing. He's saying that since any such conclusion is untenable, so is determinism. The argument, that is, is that since our efforts would be futile if determinism were true, and since plainly they're not thus futile, or perhaps slightly less strongly, can't be accepted to be futile by anyone who wants to engage in argument at all, Lockheed kind of veers between those two uh, interpretations, determinism must be false. Okay. So The argument's intended to be essentially an argument by Modus Tollens. From this conclusion, LC1, it continues like this. So we start with the conclusion of that previous argument, and then we move on, L3. But it's not the case that all our efforts uh, are always entirely futile. Therefore, it's not the case that all things are determined either to be or not to be. That's to say universal determinism is false. That's how Locke interprets the lazy argument. I think we can be fairly confident that Locke's right um, that, historically speaking, the lazy argument was intended to serve as a refutation of stoic determinist principles. I'm not qualified to say that. Um, I say it uh, based on um, what I think is the very authoritative treatment uh, that Susanna Bobseen gives in her, in her uh, masterly treatment of this argument. Um, And I'm I'm just inclined to take her word for it that it is intended as an anti-determinist argument. But the historical point is of much less interest to me um, than the fact of the subsequent misinterpretation, Um, in support of which Locke cites quite a lot of evidence. A lot of people have taken it the other way as an argument for for laziness. Um, Locke himself thinks there's a fairly obvious charitable reconstruction of the lazy argument based on the idea, as he puts it, that, were determinism true, nothing at the level of normatively agency-determined action would be achievable by us. For determinism would rob us of the ability to act in a way that is normatively determined, yet diverges from the path that's causally predetermined. And I don't here want to go into the details of his reconstruction or sort of evaluate it or anything like that because, as I've said, my my point tonight isn't really about the battle between compatibilism and libertarianism as such. My point is really about the fact that I think some kinds of libertarian argument don't even get the airplay they deserve because people don't recognize them as the attempts to establish the falsity of determinism that they're intended to be perhaps because it's already being presupposed uh, that no one could hope to establish the falsity of determinism in such such a way. I think we need to ask, why has the lazy argument constantly been uncharitably misinterpreted as a sophistical argument for doing nothing, instead of a quite reasonable-looking argument against determinism, if it's true as Locke thinks that it has? And in my mind, the answer to this question promises to connect with the refusal that I've encountered amongst a number of philosophers to countenance agency incompatibilism as a serious position, precisely because you can argue from it so very easily to the falsity of determinism. The prior conviction that it should not be possible to do this means that the tenability of a certain version of libertarianism is constantly, I think, in danger of being missed. Okay, what I want to look at is what I think are a range of interconnected factors uh, that I think are at play in the free will debate, which have made this type of libertarian position that I'm talking about seem more preposterous or dialectically problematic uh, than it actually should seem. Uh, I think there are a lot of assumptions around that are ingrained and widely accepted but dispensable. Um, and in the next part of the talk, I want to explain what some of those before turning at the the end to draw on some comparisons with the external world debate, uh, which I think can help to bolster um, the case I want to make. So I want to start by saying some things about conditionals. Uh, I'm slightly terrified uh, at this point because I've noticed that Dorothy Edgington is in the audience, and I don't actually know very much at all about conditionals. So Dorothy, I apologize if I make some very silly blunders um, in this part. Um, I think one of the factors that's apt to exacerbate the sense that the libertarian's doing something outrageous or in some sense underhand or problematic uh, when she offers anti-determinist arguments uh, like mine or uh, like the lazy argument is the tendency to formulate the conditional from which the argument begins using uh, an indicative rather than a subjunctive conditional. Uh, I mean, Locke's discussion of the lazy argument uses an indicative. It's not pressed on him. You know, that's, it's his formulation. He's chosen to formulate it this way. So we have, roughly speaking, summarised and simplified, it's something like this. If determinism's true, all our efforts are futile, conditional premise. It's not the case that all our efforts are futile, second premise. Therefore, conclusion, determinism's <laughs> not true. Uh, I take it there's nothing wrong with the formal validity of that argument and that the substantive task is going to be about establishing the premises. Okay. But what I want to draw attention to is a feature that I think makes the conditional premise RL1 there. Um, seem not merely you know controversial and in need of argument and so on, but more fundamentally functionally problematic as a premise in the argument it's meant to subserve. And that's an assumption that I think is encoded in the grammar of the indicative conditional. The assumption, that I shall, as I shall put it, that determinism is a live option. So consider. These two claims, we've got RL1 from the previous argument. Uh, If determinism is true, all our efforts are futile. That's the indicative conditional. And compare it with what I've called RLS2 there. If determinism were true, all our efforts would be futile. That's the subjunctive conditional. What's the difference? What's the difference between the two? Well, it's notoriously not easy uh, to give a general account of that difference. And obviously, here's not the place to uh, to defend any particular uh, theory, much less develop any particular theory. Um, But I think it's it's fair to say that many prominent accounts uh, of the distinction between uh, indicative uh, and subjunctive conditionals in the literature at least incorporate the idea that one very important difference between, between the two concerns the presupposed epistemological position of the parties to the conversation in which the conditional is proffered. So in offering an indicative conditional, in particular, one seems to signal agreement with the presupposition that the antecedent is possibly true. For all that's known to the partners in the conversation, at the point at which the conditional is offered, that the antecedent's not excluded already from what's sometimes called the context set, that's Stormaker's term, or the common ground. Or to use the terminology that I prefer and will continue to use, uh, that the antecedent is, for the purposes of the discussion, a live option. If it was acknowledged to be part of the common ground, for example, that it was not the case that determinism was true, if we all sort of agreed that, uh, one would never begin any reasoning process with if determinism is true. If you wanted to reason for some reason from the supposition of determinism, in that case, you'd have to shift to the subjunctive. You'd have to say if determinism were true. Um, To signal that you're going outside the bounds uh, of what partners to the conversation agree is the established falsity of determinism. I think Stallmaker, in his old 1975 paper, offers a very sort of appealing um, view of our need for some such distinction as this distinction between indicatives and subjunctives. Um, his view, I think, was roughly this, that uh, indicative conditionals are sort of the primary kind. They're, they're the main kind of conditional. Uh, and they're the kind we put to use in lots of practical contexts, context of deliberation, trying to decide what to do, contingency planning, so on and so forth. Um, And he argues that they can only really serve those very important functions properly um, if it's a normal expectation um, when we use them that we're only in the business of considering worlds that we don't already know to be non-actual worlds. However, he notes, there can, of course, be all sorts of special purposes for which, you know, we might need to kind of reach outside the realms of uh, what we know to be uh, actual. Um, And quantify over worlds which include some, which uh, we agree for the purposes of discussion, uh, to be non-actual, or at least which might be non-actual. And when we do that, he says, we need to signal that that's what we're doing. Uh, And that's what subjunctive grammar's for, uh, is what he says. Um, So the subjunctive normally, then, marks the fact that in one way or another we're kind of straying outside the bounds of... Uh, the realm of epistemic possibility. In quite what way we're straying outside the bounds of epistemic possibility is a matter of substantial controversy. Uh, it's a nice initial thought to think, oh well, subjunctives are basically counterfactuals. You know, we're we're moving into the realm of the counterfactual when we use a subjunctive, but that that can't be right. There are examples like that one, uh, familiar from the literature. If Jones had taken arsenic, he would have shown just exactly those symptoms he does, in fact, show. You know, someone can use that as part of an argument uh, that Jones has indeed taken arsenic. So it can't be a presupposition of a person using uh, the argument in that way. Um, But uh, we're moving out into counterfactual realms. Um, Some have suggested, well, it's not that uh, that we're moving into counterfactual realms, but that we're moving into um, realms in which it's at least epistemically possible that the antecedent's false, but uh, there are counterexamples to that suggestion as well. And as far as I'm aware, the debate's still kind of raging about what exactly um, are the presuppositions of subjunctive conditionals. But for my purposes, I don't think it's going to be necessary to plump for any particular account, um, as long as it can be agreed that it is, at any rate, a normal presupposition of the indicative conditional, um, that we remain within the realm of live options when we use them. And that's, that's the premise I'm going to require. So now let's go back to the lazy argument with that little interlude about <coughs> conditionals uh, behind us. So... This, as I said, uh, is the skeletal form of, um, of Locke's lazy argument. Can you, it, are you hearing me now, by the way? Is, it, is the volume OK? It's OK. Good. OK. Um, so suppose one's trying, as Locke thinks the Stoics' opponents were trying, uh, to offer an argument that shows that determinism's false and proposes to set off from the conditional premise RL1, if determinism is true or our efforts are futile. Now, as it stands, that's an indicative conditional. And so, by the principles we've been discussing so far, it should only involve quantification over worlds which are not taken to be already excluded from the common ground. Worlds which no one who's a party to the conversation already takes to be a non-live option. But this, I want to claim, means that presenting the argument in this particular way with a conditional premise in the indicative can skew the playing field against the effectiveness of the libertarian argument as a persuasive strategy. The indicative conditional signals to an audience that determinism is being acknowledged by the presenter of the argument to be within the realm of live options. But it's arguable that she shouldn't signal this because it's not what she thinks, after all. She thinks that determinism is incompatible with agency and she thinks that agency clearly exists. So determinism is for her not within the realm of live options. Uh, And so you might think she should be going for that instead, the subjunctive version. If determinism were true, all our efforts would be futile. It's not the case that all our efforts are futile So, determinism is not true. You might think that should be the move. Now, you might think that's a really silly thing to say. That must be a a simple confusion because it might be said even the libertarian has got to be taking determinism to be a live option at least pro tem um, for the purposes of the argument in which she's engaged. She's got to, as it were, take it on as a possibility and then by modus tolerance, what she does is immediately take it out of the realm of live options by way of the very argument she wants to offer. Um, so going back to the indicative presentation, um, the point would be that what the libertarian does is accept the possibility that determinism is a live option to start with, but then by the end, of course, uh, the Modus Tollens has happened. She's taken it off the table. Okay, And that's right, of course. That, that, is, that is what Modus Tollens is supposed to do. It's supposed to take you from initial uncertainty or disagreement, uh, use the uh, truth of the intervening premise to get to uh, the conclusion of the falsity of the antecedent. That is how Modus Tollens is supposed to work. But the trouble is, I think... Um, But many of the libertarians compatibilist opponents will take it to be obvious for independent reasons, independent reasons, that no mere philosophical argument, particularly one with what they will want to regard uh, as an obviously true second premise, can possibly be capable of taking one on this journey to the alleged falsity of determinism. How could it be so easy to get there, they'll wonder. The conditional premise then, they'll think, couldn't possibly be true because no acceptable philosophical argument could be this powerful. And I think the danger for the libertarian of indicative presentation of the first premise in this context is that the audience may believe that they're licensed by that indicative presentation to retain their own conception of what the source um, is of the live optionality of the, uh, of the antecedent. that um, it's not merely a temporary sort of for the sake of argument supposition, as the libertarian would want it to be, which then gets closed off, of course, by, by the modus tollens in the argument itself, but rather a wholly separate, independent idea about what sort of thesis the thesis of determinism is. Um, for example, an empirical thesis which could not in principle uh, be shown to be false by mere philosophical argumentation. That's the danger, I think, of starting in the indicative, is that you invite compatibilists to bring that presupposition into the argument where actually for the libertarian it should have no place. And of course, if that's their view, they'll be likely to infer immediately and independently of any separate consideration of it that the conditional premise has got to be a fault. Um, At any rate, given the, in this case, undisputed falsity uh, of the consequent, that uh, it's not the case, sorry, that that all our efforts are futile. (coughs) Moreover, I'm less sure about this, I'm less sure about this, I'd like to know what people think. I think there might perhaps be a separate point to be made about the consequent of the indicative conditional there, all our efforts (coughs) are futile. Though I'm not currently confident I've got this bit quite straight. Um, the case seems to me to have something in common with the following kind of argument. Have a look at this one. So, I'm imagining someone in a situation where they're there with an interlocutor, both looking out of the window at manifestly dry pavements. Okay. Um, now, someone saying this, in that in that context, would, I think, be saying something very strange and non-felicitous. So if you started off, if it's rained, the pavements are wet, but the pavements aren't wet, so it hasn't rained. OK. No one would say that, because if you're sitting there with an interlocutor looking at dry pavements, you can see they're dry, you can see that they can see they're dry, you're not going to start with a... Conditional that has a consequence that says the pavements are wet. Okay, that's, that's going to be non-felicitous. And I wonder whether um, a similar thing is going on with um, the uh, real lazy argument that we've been looking at. I mean, if you were in a position of ignorance, you know, not looking out of the window... It would be fine to say, if it's rained, the pavements are... Or actually, more felicitously, you'd probably say, will be, to indicate that the investigation's yet to take place, will be wet. Then you might say, but the pavements aren't wet, having gone to look. Um, And then you could conclude it hasn't rained. You could do that, that's fine. And you can also do that, you can also go subjunctive. You can also say, if it had rained, the pavements would be wet, but they're not, as we can see so it hasn't rained, that's fine too. Um, But in a situation where we're both aware that the pavements are dry, and both aware that the others are aware of the same thing, we can't felicitously begin, I think, from the indicative conditional. Now, in speaking about this rain case, um, I've suggested it's the fact that we're both aware of, or that we knew, or that we could see that the pavements were dry. that prevented the use of the indicative in this case. Uh, But in fact, of course, we don't need to be right about whether the pavements are dry for for the point to hold. Um, I mean, maybe, for example, we've both been deceived by some clever optical illusion into thinking that the pavements are dry when actually they're wet or something, Um, in which case, of course, neither of us can be aware of the fact that they're uh, dry because they're not. the crucial point, then, isn't about the truth. It's about what we um, take ourselves and our interlocutors to have reason to, uh, to believe um, or to be justifiably presupposing or whatever when we offer the conditional. That's going to be the crucial thing. And since I think the indicative conditional signals that we aren't going beyond the realm of uh, what we agree is epistemically possible, we can't use it in a context in which we recognise that we're to take ourselves to have already agreed that the consequence is not epistemically possible. In such a context, we've got to shift to the subjunctive. So, uh, sorry. um to just go back to the real lazy argument again there. Um, what I want to ask is... Now, going back to the lazy argument, isn't it a bit like that? Isn't it a bit like the rain case in the case of the lazy argument? Aren't we, when we are arguing with an interlocutor, trying to persuade them, hoping that they're going to listen and be persuaded and so on, aren't we in a context in which we're implicitly accepting in some way that each of us takes the idea that all our efforts are futile to be false? Aren't we in a context which, as it were, pragmatically um, makes it the case that we should each be accepting that the other is taking it for granted that the consequent of RL1 is false? Uh, If all our efforts are futile, what are we doing here, after all, Uh, sitting here having this argument? I think the point's even clearer um, with the agency incompatibilist argument because it's even starker, you know. If determinism were true, there'd be no agents. Sorry, I need an indicative that uh, I imagine an indicative version. If determinism is true, there are no agents. Okay, would be the first premise. But there are agents so determinism's not true. It's very stark that claim, if determinism's true, there are no agents in a context in which, you know, you're You're sitting there with your interlocutor having a discussion. Um, It's it's like the dry pavements case in a certain way, it seems to me, Uh, that you're in a situation in which you've got reason to take your interlocutor, um, all ready to know that that consequent is false. I prefer to offer the argument from um, agency incompatibilism in subjunctive mode. For that reason. Okay. Um, Oh, I'm sorry, I've moved away again. Right. Sorry, I'll repeat that. I prefer to offer the argument for agency incompatibilism in the subjunctive mode because I think it invites less starkly that sense of non-felicitousness that I think the indicative presentation uh, invites. what happens when, um, I mean, I, I present the argument in this way, but often my opponents try to pin on me an indicative version of the argument, um, starting from the premise, if determinism is true, there are no agents. Um, and with that argument, they're inclined to find fault. They say to me, for example, look, you're saying that if determinism true, there aren't any agents. But obviously we both agree, don't we, that there are agents, aren't there? Um, So your position's kind of crazy. Um, You're saying that if it were to turn out that determinism's true, as of course it very well might be, um, there wouldn't be any agents. But we surely know that there are. So your conditional's just got to be unacceptable. But of course my response would be, that the argument stated in the subjunctive fashion I prefer precisely gives me reason to believe that determinism will not turn out to be true. And for one who thinks that's so, the indicative conditional is not going to be a felicitous mode of presentation of the argument. And moreover, I think, for anyone who uh, is debating with a person who takes an antecedent to be outside the realm Uh, of epistemic possibility. The felicitous choice is always going to be the subjunctive conditional because that's maximally inclusive of debaters who sort of take themselves to be in different epistemic uh, starting points. Okay. So much for conditionals. What I next want to ask is why exactly both opponents and indeed proponents uh, of arguments like the real lazy argument and the agency incompatibilist argument often default to this live optional presentation of the case, when that is, as I've tried to explain, a less fair, a less clear, a less good means of presenting what the argument's trying to get over. And I think the reason's quite a simple one. The reason is that determinism has in fact been treated throughout the history of philosophy as though it were a live option. It's been treated as a thesis that, for all we know, might be true. And I think you find the contemporary version of this view stated very often in the free will literature. Um, It's that whether or not determinism is true is an empirical question. Um, Fisher says, for example, it's got to be left to the men in white coats. The men in white coats are going to decide whether determinism is true. It's an essentially scientific matter, in other words, which we philosophers have really got no business um, getting ourselves involved in. Our job is to figure out what would follow from the truth of determinism, not to try to get involved in the question, you know, whether whether or not uh, it, it it actually holds. And in such a context as this, I think it's very natural, of course, to go for a live option reading um, of the crucial argument, um, because the context is one in which it's being taken for granted that determinism is a live option. Um, and indeed, in that context, the subjunctive version of the argument, which arrives so swiftly, so readily uh, at the conclusion that determinism is false, might just look like a proof of the silliness of its own first premise. An argument that just results sort of so straightforwardly in the conclusion that determinism is false Um, that it looks as though there must be something wrong with it. But I'm, of course, very interested in this silly-looking argument. Can a case be made for its legitimacy in a context in which we're being constantly enjoined to believe that determinism is a live option? Well, it's at this point that I want to begin to introduce uh, some comparisons with the external world debate that I think could possibly help us. As I said at the outset, it is of course possible to be uh, sceptical about where the mind-independent external reality exists, just as it's possible to be sceptical about free will. But I think it's rather striking uh, that no one in fact, or at least almost no one, uh, genuinely doubts the existence of external reality. Uh, We often have radical conclusions about what we can know, what we can justifiably believe, what we can prove, all that kind of thing. But on the whole, uh, the conclusions are thoroughly epistemic. Uh, No one seriously worries, or no one much, I think, anyway, seriously worries uh, about the existence of the external world. But by contrast, people really do worry, they really do worry um, about the possibility Um, that free will doesn't exist, alternate possibility involving free will doesn't exist. And even those who are inclined to think there probably is such a thing are still, you know, they're, they're a little bit anxious, they're a little bit tentative about it. And I think that's a very interesting disparity on which we've got reason to reflect because I think it bears on the question just how dialectically preposterous it might be just to sort of assert that there's agency. You know, just say, well, I know this as well as I know anything, you know, I can't imagine a premise that I can establish with more certainty <laughs> than the premise that uh, there, is, there is agency. Um, I think that's how many people think about the, uh, the premise that there's an external world, that the premises on which one might think to doubt it are going to be known less securely, less certainly uh, than the premise that the external world exists in the first place. Why is that? I mean, why why do people feel so secure about their, like the the existence of the external world? I think it's an interesting question, and I think there are different reasons. Um, I think some people think there are arguments there, you know, there are arguments there, maybe transcendental arguments there that will take you to um, the sort of incoherence of its denial. Um I think, in a way, that's what Locke trying to do with um, the, the free will question. He's trying to say, look, there's just something. If there are arguments we can give that show that it's kind of self-undermining, self-refuting. Um, we can kind of show um, that it's it's problematic to deny agency. So I think he's he's going down that that line, the line that's parallel to. Um, a transcendental argument type um, way of um, moving away from uh, external world scepticism. But I think you know lots of people don't think there are acceptable transcendental arguments uh, pertaining to the existence of the external world. Um, I think lots of philosophers are prepared just to accept that we don't know and maybe that we haven't even got any reason to think um, but it's even more likely than not that there's any mind-independent reality. Um, and they don't think any transcendental argument's going to come riding to the rescue either. But still, they don't accept that the non-existence of mind-independent reality is a properly live option. They just kind of note the sceptical arguments with interest and they move on. I don't want to argue about whether that attitude is is or isn't acceptable in the external world case. That's not really what I'm interested in. The point I want to make here is that I think we should agree it's definitely not like that in the free will case. That's not how the debate has gone. The debate about free will is unquestionably really live. There are lots who seriously doubt the existence of alternate possibility involving free will. In a way that I think pretty much no one seriously doubts the existence of the mind independent world. And that's no doubt, I think, connected to the temptingness of live option readings of the relevant arguments. And I now want to uh, move to have a think about why this disanalogy might exist and end by suggesting we ought to question it. Okay, so. The first reason I think people are inclined to suppose that determinism is a live option is the one I've already mentioned. It's assumed that determinism is an empirical thesis. But I think we need to ask why? Why are we assuming that determinism is an empirical thesis? Where's, where's that idea coming from? And I think the answer to that question really is that we are operating these days with a very problematic definition of determinism. I mean. There are lots of definitions of determinism around, but lots of them look something like that. That's Fisher's definition of determinism. So he says, for any given time, a complete statement of the non-relational facts about that time, together with a complete statement of the laws of nature, entails, entails, that's my italics, every truth as to what happens after that time. So is that true? Is that true? Nobody knows, it's very natural to say. Nobody knows because nobody's got those crucial complete statements to hand. Uh, so nobody can kind of run them through a logic tree or whatever to find out where the determinism is true. And probably no one ever is gonna have those crucial statements to hand. But if anyone ever does have them, well it'll be scientists because they're in charge of providing the complete statement of the laws of nature uh, maybe they're also in charge of saying what the empirical facts are at any given time, a lot of people do think that. So probably the necessary knowledge is never going to be available, um, but even if it is, it's not going to come from a priori theorising or pure argumentation. So in the meantime we're going to have to content ourselves as philosophers um, with just deciding really well, what we would say um, if determinism turned out to be true. Uh, as well it might, as it were. And that's got to be the limit of our ambition. I think that's a very, very common way of thinking about determinism. Um, So that's the first encouragement to what I'm calling live option thinking. I'm myself deeply opposed to that way of thinking about determinism. I'm deeply opposed for the start to thinking that determinism can be stated helpfully in this way as a thesis whose central concept is entailment. Entailment. The main problem, I think, with doing it that way, is that certain views, which, in, in my view, are utterly unthreatening to free will or agency or anything like that, um, are then consistent with the definition. Views, for example, according to which the laws of nature are what have been called non-governing laws, non-governing laws, sort of mere useful Humean generalisations or something like that, um, which don't impose any actual constraints on the forward flow of reality at all. But no one concerned about free will, it seems to me, need worry about determinism if that's all the laws are. You know, if it's just one little thing and then another, a la Lewis, a la Hume, um, we can all agree to be compatibilists and go home, it seems to me. The worrying conceptions of determinism, the ones which truly threaten free will, are the ones whose central concept is not entailment, but necessitation conceived of as something like a metaphysical, real-worldly relation uh, in which things make other things happen in some way. Um, I think we should remember that before philosophers talked about determinism and wondered about whether it was compatible with free will they talked about the doctrine of necessity. The doctrine of necessity was the thing that was uh, put up against free will um, as the as the possible problem, the possible thing that we might need to uh, see off if we were going to um, argue that there was any room for free will in the universe. And my view is that If we're going to bother about whether determinism is or isn't compatible with free will, let's start with a conception of determinism that at least does look quite scary, you know, that does look as though it might be threatening to free will, rather than one that seems to me, and indeed to many compatibilists, uh, as though it's clearly compatible with it. So I think we need to ditch the entailment definition. But suppose we do, suppose we start then with a necessitation-based definition of determinism. Then I think it's much less clear that determinism can any longer be regarded as a purely empirical thesis. Any thesis whose central concept is necessitation, that looks like an interesting kind of modal concept, looks already like it might be shaping up to be a thesis that philosophers could get their hands on. Um, Lockheed has a nice metaphor, he says, the future's been in the past for 13 points, sorry, been in the post, (laughs) not been in the past, been in the post for um, 13.75 billion years. Uh, nice metaphor. Has the future been in the past for 13.75 billion years? What would it mean to say so? What would the presuppositions of an assumption like that be? Um, Do we already have reason to think that some of those presuppositions are false? What would the consequences be? Do we already have reason to think some of the consequences are false? Um, And with these last questions, the ones about consequences, comes the possibility, I think, of offering arguments against determinism, like the ones I've suggested, the real lazy argument, the agency incompatibilist argument, that attempt to show, for example, that if determinism were true, there couldn't be any agency. So, since there clearly is agency... Determinism can't be true. We're no longer stuck in this stultifying realm of live option thinking, supposing that whatever we say has to remain consistent with the allegedly unassailable fact that we don't know whether determinism is true because the men in white coats still haven't told us. Okay, so that's, uh, that's the first and I think the most important encouragement to live option thinking. This one I think is another... Um, that there's a close association, obviously, between the debate about free will and debates about moral responsibility uh, and things like punishment and blame uh, and so on. Um, There's these worrying examples that crowd our brains. We we think about Phineas Gage, for example, um, uh, whose personality changed drastically when an iron rod entered his brain following a serious accident. Um, There are the effects of drugs uh, which can render us happier or more docile or paranoid or anxious or whatever, um, suggesting that brain chemistry for which we're not responsible might play a large role in determining what kinds of people we actually turn out to be and what kinds of things we, we do. And then there are difficult upbringings, which make it difficult, maybe impossible, for children to lead successful, happy, independent adult lives. Um, there are, in other words, all these sort of undeniable islands of local influence, as I'd like to put it, um, where, you know, there are these factors which, having been present in individual cases, we judge that uh, free will, the free will of the agent, has been impaired. So we've discovered these islands, we think, these islands of local influence. Um, But then I think it's very, very easy to get sucked into the thought that, you know, what's to say? What's to say the whole of a person's behaviour if we only knew it isn't completely determined by factors like that. Um, Factors which are such that no individual's responsible for them. And then I think we're in the ballpark of another kind of argument um, that the non-existence of free will has surely got to be considered to be a live option. But I think at this point, um, I'd want to make a comparison with um, a move that's certain sometimes made in the philosophical debate about the existence of external reality. So recall that Descartes starts off talking uh, about sceptical doubt and developing the case for it, In the meditations by reflecting that we often go wrong we often go wrong in ordinary situations round towers look square and straight sticks look bent in water and all those kinds of things Um, there are these what what you might call islands of islands of local error islands of local mistake but as I'm sure many of you who studied the meditations will remember uh, there's a very stock objection um, to that line of thinking in the literature um, which says, look, you, you can't infer safely from the fact that we might make mistakes about the odd tower or the odd stick um, that I might be completely mistaken about the existence of the entire external world. You can't make that move. So you can't infer uh, the possibility of global error from these local local issues. Um, there's that nice... Uh, nice phrase uh, that the move from the ubiquitous possibility of error to the possibility of ubiquitous error is is fallacious but i think in the literature on free will we are often encouraged to accept as a serious possibility what is to my mind a sort of equally preposterous totalizing move um, to the thesis of determinism partly on the basis of similarly local phenomena the existence of these islands of local influence um, in the causal stories that underpin behaviour. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting for a minute that the islands ought to be ignored or that they're not important or that they don't absolve people from responsibility or anything like that. All I'm saying is that the existence of these islands of local influence no more suggests that global determinism is true than the fact that we make mistakes about towers and sticks suggests we've got reason to worry about the external world. And finally, third reason. No inventory, I think, of reasons for the persistence of determinism as a live option thinking in the free will debate would be complete that didn't mention compatibilism. Um, Because, of course, what compatibilism gives us is the possibility of accepting um, that determinism is a live option without having to worry too much about it. Um, since even if determinism were true, compatibilism entails nothing frightening, hangs on it, uh, at any rate not where free will's concerned. The parallel position, I've been wondering about this for a bit, what, what the parallel position in the case of the external uh, world debate might be, and I think it might be a sort of agnostic quietism, something like that, someone who thought that, uh, well, maybe we don't know um, whether or not there's a mind-independent reality. Uh, But we kind of know there's something, anyhow. um, And whatever the nature of that something turns out to be, uh, no difference to anything that matters could possibly be made um, by any discovery pertaining to that nature. Um, So with compatibilism on the table, I think there's no real point agonising about determinism and whether or not it's true, because the sting seems to have gone out of the question Compatibilism is what enables even the live-option theorists to save the appearances and insist that we are agents, despite determinism, and that we don't need to give anything up. Now, as I've constantly stressed uh, throughout this talk, I'm not interested tonight in arguing against compatibilism or saying it's wrong or trying to undermine it or anything. What I've sought to do instead is rather to argue that compatibilism regularly helps itself to an unfair competitive advantage when it insists that determinism is a purely empirical thesis which must therefore be retained as part of the realm of live options. It's not, of course, that I believe that we can rule out absolutely by means of an incontrovertible proof that determinism is false. Maybe, sorry, that determinism is true. Maybe, maybe it is true. Um, any more than I think that we can give an incontrovertible proof that the external world exists. But I do think that it is acceptable to embrace, as a piece of knowledge, the claim that there are agents. And that there's nothing whatever wrong with the idea that we might be able to argue on this basis to the falsity of determinism. And I don't suppose, of course, that this can be done without a great deal of serious work, a great deal of serious argument. I only mean to insist that libertarians needn't accept the epistemic assumptions which can make it look as though their arguments fly in the face of various kinds of common sense. To base arguments for the falsity of determinism on the existence of agency is to do nothing more preposterous, I believe, nothing more question-begging Than is regularly done by philosophers who take it for granted in all their other arguments and reasonings that the external world exists. I think agency and the external world are on a par. We can deny neither without undermining the very things which make all our enterprises, including argumentation, possible. Thank you.